0: I have a dear couple here with me today, uh, Dudley and Julia Hanley. Uh, You've heard about them in roundabout ways. Uh, Anybody remember me telling the story about the man, the spider bit? Anybody remember that story? This is the man. Uh, You remember the story of me telling about uh, taking a man to see Tom Landry, who played football with Tom Landry at the University of Texas? It was Julia's dad who played for the Washington Redskins, Mr. Dimp Harris. A good, godly man who was more about his family than he ever was about football. But uh, this family is dear to me. They were members of my church in Camden, Alabama. And so they're here from Camden, Alabama today. So all those stories I tell about Camden, if you need to verify them, here they are right here. <laughs> love those people and love that church. We've been looking at the book of 1 Corinthians and we've been talking about uh, the broken church, and our steeple's down because our cross and our church, our steeple was broken, and we've been talking about our own broken things in our church. A lot of things are broken because we're all broken. But the recipe that Paul was giving the church at Corinth for repairing their broken church was the Holy Spirit. But he needed to correct some things that they had broken about the Holy Spirit, and so that's what we've started talking about as we're exploring the work of the Holy Spirit. And last week we talked about the Spirit-empowered church. And I gave you four or five characteristics of the Spirit-empowered church. And the first one was that the Spirit-empowered church is surrendered to the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit. Paul said to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And he said one and the same Spirit works all these things. He listed some gifts, and we're going to talk about those later. But he said distributing to each one individually, just as He wills. The Spirit is sovereign. It is as He wills over the life and ministry of the church. And you and I are to live under the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit. A person filled with the Holy Spirit is so surrendered to the Spirit's leadership and lordship that when the Spirit has access to that person, he can do in and through that person anything he chooses and then together as spirit empowered individuals we become a spirit empowered church second the spirit empowered church continually longs for a manifestation of the holy spirit the word manifestation in 1st corinthians chapter 12 verse 11 and verse 7 It means the outward, visible, perceptible, outshining of the Spirit's activity at work in the lives of the members. And the church desires such a manifestation of the Spirit because the the Spirit-empowered church is completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Now, we read about miracles and healings and things like that last week, and those things certainly depend upon the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. But the key need, the key reason that you and I need the presence and power of the Holy Spirit is that we might live the Christian life because in the strength of our flesh we will fail. But if we are indwelled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, we will walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We will pray in the spirit and worship in the spirit and truth. We will hear what the spirit is saying to the churches because we will be in the spirit on the Lord's day. And that church then will experience the activity of the Holy Spirit. And that was our fourth characteristic of the spirit-empowered church. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 8 through 11. We looked at these verses last week. Or to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit and to another the word of knowledge according to the same spirit and to another faith by the same spirit and to another gifts of healing by the one spirit to, the, to another the effecting of miracles to another prophecy to another the distinguishing of spirits to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Now, the danger is that when we begin to emphasize the gifts of the Spirit, and that's what we're going to be talking about this morning is that we lose sight of the fact that the gift with the capital G is the Holy Spirit. And then there are other gifts, but they begin with a small g because it is the Spirit himself who is working through the individual just as he wills. Last week, we asked the question, Uh, Does the Holy Spirit manifest himself through these gifts today? And here was my answer. I would say to you, that is completely up to the Holy Spirit. It is just as he wills, when he wills, where he wills, and to whom he wills. If the Holy Spirit has access to you, he can use you to do whatever he chooses. And then, in the Spirit-empowered church, the final characteristic the Spirit-empowered church, the atmosphere of that church, is charged by the Holy Spirit. And now we're going to talk about the gifts of the Spirit as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 27 through 31. And that's the verses for today. Chapter 12, verses 27 through 31. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, and various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues. Do they? All do not interpret, do they, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. And so Paul is beginning to end the twelfth chapter, and he moves to the thirteenth where he talks about love, and then the fourteenth, where he talks about tongues, and we're going to skip the thirteenth and talk about the fourteenth next week. But I want you to notice this passage. Did you notice that this list has numbers in it? You didn't you didn't see the numbers? The numbers are there. First. Uh, The first chapter in the Bible also has numbers. The first day this happened, the second day this happened. The last chapter in the, the last book of the Bible has numbers in it. Jesus said, I am the first and I am the last. It talks about sequence or order. And obviously, that's what we have here. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul doesn't use all the gifts there, but he does give a similar order. He says in chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up the body of Christ. And as he lays out these gifts, he's not expressing just their order in the local church, but the order of their importance in the church at large. And so we're going to begin with the number one, the first gift, the number one gift. My grandchildren talk about their number one house and their number two house. That means where they lived when they were little and where they lived when they were not so little. But in their number one, they, they understand order. The number one gift in the church, according to Paul, is the apostles. How many apostles were there? Well, there were 12 And then uh, Judas, the false apostle, after he got out of the way, they chose Matthias. I had a pastor friend of mine back when I was in college who preached a sermon on that, called that the misled nominating committee. And then the, the apostle born out of due time was the apostle Paul. And those 12 became vitally important to the life of the church. Now, does every church, should every church have 12 apostles? Or did those 12 have a unique assignment in the history of the church? Well, I'm going to let Paul answer that question. First, apostles. If you look back at chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians verse 9, you'll hear Paul use another order for apostles. He says, for I think God has exhibited us apostles. He's referring to himself as an apostle. He has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both the angels and men. Now, we've seen him give two classifications to the term apostle, first of all and last of all, which is definitely a sense of time. He, Paul is speaking of a specific group and a specific number that had a specific assignment for a specific time. When Paul says first apostles, it can't be a reference to time because that's an order, and then Paul's born out of due time, he became an apostle later, but first is a reference to to priority. Why were the apostles of the church of first importance in the church and why is, why do we know that to be true? Well, there was one or a couple of qualifications that they needed to have. They needed to be uh, eyewitnesses of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They needed to have seen the res- risen Lord. You know anybody that's seen the risen Lord lately? Anybody? Not on either. Paul had seen the risen Lord. Jesus appeared to him, you remember. And that was one of the qualifications of being the apostle. The other thing is you had to be chosen by the Lord himself. And then in the book of Revelation, we see that the New Jerusalem has, as part of its foundation stones, the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. I believe that's a specific number. So there had to be twelve. And now I want to introduce you to another order, and that Paul uses in reference to himself. He says, Of the apostles, last of all, uh, to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So, first of all, apostles, last of all, apostles, and the last of all, the apostles. Paul said, was me. That's just Paul. You can take Paul's opinion, or you can take your own. But this is what the Bible says. Now, did Jesus appear often to people in the New Testament after his resurrection? And it has after his ascension into heaven? I mean, did he appear every day to people in the early church? No. He didn't appear to people in the early church. They had never seen Jesus. So they couldn't be an apostle. I can prove that to you from Scripture. Peter, writing to the early church, said in 1 Peter 1.8, this is a verse that I dearly love. He says, though you, speaking to them, just like he's speaking to you because it's also true of you, though you have not seen him, you love him. Imagine that. He was saying to these people, Peter had seen Jesus, but he knew they hadn't. And he said to them, though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. And you, though you do not see him now, you rejoice with joy inexpressible, Doug, and full of glory. No one Peter wrote to could have ever become an apostle because they'd never seen Jesus. First, apostles. Last of all, apostles. And Paul said, last of all, he appeared to me. Now, the apostles are important. They were so important that the early church continued in the apostles' teaching. They studied, and we still do today, the New Testament, largely the teaching of the apostles. But Paul also said, you know, they are false apostles. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 and 14, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. So, just to say that. Let's go on to number two, prophets. We need to understand what a New Testament prophet is. What do the Old Testament prophets do? Well, Old Testament prophets did one thing. They spoke for God, and I told you last week they didn't foretell the future. Prophets don't foretell the future. They foretell the Word of God. They only say what God says to them. And so the prophets of the Old Testament spoke for God. And then in the New Testament, when Jesus preached, he preached from the Bible, from the prophets. When, when Paul preached, he preached From the Old Testament, the Bible, the prophets, because those became, their words became Scripture, the words of God, those Old Testament prophets. And so in the New Testament, there are only four references to the activity of a prophet in the life of a church. And apart from two references to the ministry of Agabus, who responded to the Spirit's leading and forewarned forewarned of things to come, every other function of a prophet in the New Testament, and this is so important, it fell under the role of teaching and preaching. You say, I've never heard that before, that prophets were teachers and preachers. Well, in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, the Bible says that Paul and uh, that Paul and Barnabas were prophets. But in Acts chapter 15, verse 32, uh, uh, we, uh, we read that they were also preachers and teachers. Because we read here, two prophets, Judas and Silas, uh, encouraged and strengthened the church with a lengthy message. Lengthy, do you see that? That's important that we see lengthy. Ours aren't lengthy, are they? But that's what they did. Prophets encouraged and strengthened the church. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse three gave the specific role of a New Testament prophet. He said, "One who prophesies speaks to men. Here it is. This is the definition. One who prophesies speaks to men for edification, for exhortation, and consolation. To build you up, to get you going, and to comfort you. And that's what we do every Sunday, isn't it? That's what your Sunday school teacher does. That's what the evangelist does when he comes here and preaches a revival. That's what your pastor does from week to week. He speaks to you for edification, for exhortation and for consolation. That was their role. And in the Old Testament, God gave this warning, and perhaps you've never read this, but you should, from the book of Jeremiah. In chapter 23, God said, I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, this is what they would have done. They would have announced my words to my people And would have turned them back from their evil ways. And then he says, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy falsely in my name saying, I had a dream, I had a dream. And the Lord says, how long? Is there anything in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy falsehood, even these prophets of the deception In their own heart, who intend to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which they relate to one another, just as their fathers forgot my name because of Baal, the prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth for what the straw have in common with grain. Obviously, God has an idea about what ought to be done and what ought to be said to his people, and it's based on his word. Now, Paul said also in 1 Corinthians, as he's giving some instructions in chapter 14, he said, if you're going to have prophets in the church speak, let them do it one by one, and don't get it all confused. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not the author of confusion but the author of peace. And that leads us to number three, which is not in your list, but is important And what I'm trying to help you, and that is the discernment of spirits. There is one Holy Spirit. And when you read your Bible, the Holy Spirit, when it's a reference to the Holy Spirit, if it's a good translation of your Bible, it should be a capital S or either the Holy Spirit. Every time the word spirits is used in the New Testament with a little letter, this is every time but two, It refers to an unclean or evil spirit, and it does so here. Discernment of spirits is to help us recognize that which is of God and that which is not. Last week we said that the footprints and fingerprints of the Holy Spirit will look just like the footprints and fingerprints of God. The footprints and fingerprints of the Holy Spirit will look just like the footprints and fingerprints of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit will never contradict the word of which he is the author. This is the sword of the Spirit. We need to remember that. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul said, The Spirit, with the capital S, speaketh expressly that in latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits, little s, and doctrines of devils. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, believe, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Well, we need to move on from that and understand that the Old Testament prophet had one goal and one role. He pointed forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the Old Testament prophet. And now we move to the last set of gifts, and that is pastor, teacher, evangelist. You say, there's more there. Yes, we're going to get to that next week. But we're just dealing with these, pastor, teacher, evangelist. Remember, the Old Testament prophet pointed toward Christ, pointed toward the Messiah. All the Old Testament did that. Every story in the Old Testament is pointing that way. Some of you have the gospel project in Sunday school, and you know that's the emphasis of the gospel project. Everything needs to point toward Jesus. That's what it did in the Old Testament. And so what's a prophet to do in the New Testament? And what's a preacher to do in the New Testament? And what's a teacher to do in the New Testament? And what's an evangelist to do? He's to point to the cross everybody's to point to the cross. If I come to you on Sunday, I'm to point you to the cross. I'm to tell you about Jesus, and I'm to tell you about all the Old Testament prophets who pointed you to the cross. I'm to encourage you to follow Jesus. I'm to give you the comfort of Jesus. I'm to give you the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of his apostles who knew him personally. That's what it's all about. Of all the expressions the Holy Spirit should desire, Paul said, there's one above all else the church ought to seek. If you want to experience the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in your church, this is what you ought to pray for. You ought to pray that everybody in your church would prophesy. Do you know what that means? It means that everybody in your church would be talking about Jesus. Everybody in your church would be pointing to the cross. That in your Sunday school class." You'd be saying, you remember what Jesus did for you on the cross? That from the choir, you remember what Jesus did for us on the cross? Singing becomes evangelistic. Remember the cross. Preaching is evangelistic. Praying is evangelistic. We're all pointing to the cross and talking about what Jesus did in the scripture, but also what he's done for us. Let me tell you what Jesus did for me, how he changed my life, how he changed my home. And Paul says, Look, if everybody does that when you go to church, this is what he says in the scripture 1 Corinthians 14, verses 24 and 25. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God and declare, "God is certainly among you, man. God's in that place. Those people are all about Jesus. Every everything you hear is about Jesus. And God is in that place." He didn't say if you got a bunch of healing going on. He didn't say if you got a bunch of tongues going on. He didn't say if you got good music or good preaching. Just let people. Talk about Jesus. Let them point to the cross. Because that's what all the Old Testament prophets did. And every New Testament prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelist ought to be doing the same thing. I wonder today if you're here and there's something that the Lord Jesus needs to do for you. Something missing in your life. Something you need. You know, we look at this world situation today and we've got all these things going on. We got, we've got this virus swirling around. We've got world chaos swirling around. Who do you think in control of that? Not the president we have now. Not the president we had before. Not one you might have next week. Not the CDC. Not the WHO. Who can help you? Jesus. Only Jesus. Let's pray.